Welcome to the Parent Guide to GCSE podcast, where we're taking the yikes out of year 11. This is episode two, everything to expect in English with our second victim, Tom Reynolds. So welcome to the second episode of the Parent Guide to GCSE podcast. We are here today with uh, the very wonderful Tom Reynolds, who is um, a teacher of 14 years, uh, five times head of English, uh, assistant head teacher, and currently is an SLE and is working as a consultant helping schools around, well, not just around the country, around the world, to improve their English teaching skills and, and improve their results. So um, first up, I guess most of our listeners are probably wondering, what on earth is an SLE? So do you want to talk us through the whole why you're so very awesome? I know you always, everybody loves doing that part. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much for having me. Um, so yeah, an SLE is a specialist leader of education um, for, a specific, for a specific subject. So I'm an English SLE. Generally, that means that between schools, um, different areas of the country, that you can go and support the school in their English teaching and learning capacity as somebody who, was, who has a proven track record of success as an English leader. So Tom and I met, uh, it must be nearly two years ago now, we were both exhibiting at a, an education technology show and Tom was there because he was uh, talking about the Eden method, which is the, the method that you've developed, right, to, uh, to kind of, I don't know, demystify the, the teaching of English almost to, to make it easy, clearly broken down steps to follow. Yeah. And that's what you've been going around talking about. I know you've been in Athens recently, you were in Dubai yeah. not so long ago. Mm-hmm. What's, what's kind of your, your secret to, how did you come about the method, I guess is my question, and, and okay. why does it work so well? Fortunately, I've been asked that quite recently, so I shouldn't ramble too much. <laughs> um, I was diagnosed very unhelpfully the day after my degree, my English language and literature degree, as being quite severely uh, dyslexic. And really to find that out, as, as albeit it was a relief in some ways, I was 21 and a half and I'd been sort of in a classroom the best part of 20 years to one degree or another. And I'd always struggled with English as being the prospect of infinity because that's how it was always told to me. Um, blank sheet of paper, off you go, do something very much similar in the art in the art lessons. And I remember asking teachers when I would get a piece of work back, so how many things do I need to improve on? And there was never an explicit number, which I could never get my head around because I didn't believe that there was an infinite number of things that could be improved. I was then incredibly surprised when I found myself teaching that when I asked my first head of department, how many skills are we supposed to impart from a teaching point of view? There was no answer either. So whilst I thought it was just something that my teachers hadn't passed on to me, but obviously existed. Now I was sat the other side of the desk and in the staff room with the people in charge of it and say, so how many skills are we meant to teach? If you ask any te- English teacher, how many skills do you teach? The first thing that they will say is, what do you mean? Guaranteed. And you respond to that with, okay, um, a varied and effective use of sentence form, a varied and effective use of sentence type, accurate spelling, vocabulary for effect, 
So there's two, three, four, how many more? And then the second thing that they will say is lots. And therein lies the problem for students like me. Well, it's not lots. Lots is to do with what you can do with the skills. Content is infinite. So I use the analogy to the point of boring myself, but hopefully, as the listeners haven't heard before, it's, it's okay for them. <laughs> it's much like learning an instrument. You tune the instrument, you learn your scales, you learn all of your different like notes, chords, but that is not infinite. That is very limited to, to learn how an instrument works in terms of just how many you know, sort of keys, notes, chords there are. That is finite and it's boring. But once you've learned it, you can then do the infinite with it. And that was never explained to me. And so the Eden method, um, Eden is not a biblical reference, although we do have the tree as the, the logo. Eden is a portmanteau of education and English. And so my educational English method is to say to teachers and to students that there are only a set amount of skills to what I believe as being 51, 18 writing skills, 18 for reading, 15 for speaking and listening. And as soon as you say to a student there's 51, then they've got something to aim for and they can tick them off. And in fact, as soon as you say to a teacher, right, this year you need to make sure they know these 51 skills because otherwise they are teaching by chance. And these skills aren't a surprise. I put them in front of teachers every day and people look at them and nod and go, yeah. But the fact is that that list has never been compiled. An adequate and accurate compendium of English skills just doesn't exist. And so I needed one as a learner, never got one was thoroughly overwhelmed and surprised that I didn't get one as a teacher. I never got my head around that so that every English student is sitting in front of a teacher who is effectively trying to remember as many of the skills to impart as possible. And so I went, I set about making a list and that list has been through all sorts of sort of quality control checks from students, uh, teachers, English professionals, and no one's ever suggested that there needs to be a 50 second. And so the crux of what I do is making English teaching and learning explicit and finite so that then the content layered on top of it can be whatever it needs to be. And uh, we were talking the other day, weren't we, about how you're hopefully in the process of turning this into a book so that it means not just teachers who happen to be in schools that are lucky enough to have heard of you and and employed you but also students parents anyone can can access this and make it a little more obvious for themselves how how it all works and what they need to do to uh, to pass the course so roughly when can we hopefully see this in all good bookstores i'm unfortunately i'm exhibiting the language the language show in november in london i would, I would have loved for it to be ready by then but it it won't be, um, which really pains me to say, because I've kind of said that out loud and admitted it for the first time in front of you. Um, I hadn't actually come to grips with the fact that I wasn't going to do it for November before, but I won't. So that, this is quite cathartic for me, if nothing else. Um, uh, there is a second show that I'm meant to be doing in, it's back in Athens in March, and I would love for it to be, to be ready for then. That gives me six months 
it's 51 skills, 51 chapters. Ideally, each chapter is only going to be, some of them will be one page, some of them will be two. It will be explicitly clear, this is the skill, this is what the skill means. Here are two or three examples, and then here are some suggested tasks at the bottom. And I believe, I don't know if anybody else is doing this, but the same book will be written for teacher, student, and parent. It will not be the parent copy or the student copy or the, student, the teacher copy. It'll be one book that says whether you're learning this skill or teaching it, this is what it means, this is how you do it. Um, so parents can effectively be the intermediary between, so this is how the teacher would teach it, this is how you would need to learn it, or the student can see this is how I'm meant to be learning it, this is how to do it. Um, to really, I believe very much in the triangulation between those three. If you take one of those, one of those points out, everything falls down. So for me to create a book that students, parents and teachers all share will be the key to improving that quality of teaching and learning between the three, um, the three key books. Awesome. Well, we will definitely be shouting about it. Uh, so if you aren't already following us on, uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, or if you're not on our mailing list, then get yourselves on there. Cause as soon as we know this is available, we will be letting you know, because it sounds very sensible. I know I always struggled at school with figuring out what I was supposed to do for English. And I know that as ours have gone through their GCSEs, we've struggled with just, uh, it's the same question all the parents ask us, how on earth do you revise for English language? So I guess that's my next question. How on earth do you revise for English language? If, if you don't mind, I will, I will try and, I'll talk about language and literature at the same time. Uh, stopping to kind of divide between the two because there are so many similarities between them. Um, they are worth sort of talking about in tandem. The first thing I would do, which sounds incredibly obvious, is to have on the fridge, and not just for English, but for all of the exams, the dates of when the exams are. Um, a lot of students seem surprised the week before the exam that it's their <laughs> English exam the week afterwards. Um, a lot of parents seem to be surprised when you're asking them not to go on holiday during their child's sort of GCSE English exams. And so for true ownership of the situation, the exam dates, the May and June's timetable has already been released. Anyone can go onto Google and type in 2020 GCSE. And as soon as you put those letters in, it will predict timetable and click it. Everything is there. All parents would need to know is the exam board that their child studies for which particular subject. But that is the first point to start because that's the big picture. When are they? Um, so the English lang sorry, the English literature exams are the first one is on the 13th of May. The one on the 13th of May will be the Shakespeare text and the 19th century novel. For that, a lot of students will either be Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet. So that will be section A on that date, and then section B, the 19th century novel, for a lot of students, it will be A Christmas Carol, just two sections in that, that exam. Um, eight days afterwards, on the 21st of May, there was a slightly longer literature exam, and that's where they will look at a modern text first and then poetry. The modern text uh, inspector calls for a lot of schools and a lot of students, then section B is what's called the scene poetry or the anthology, where students will have 
to answer a question on a poem that they've seen before and then to compare it with one of the poems that they have revised rather unfairly because they're not given a copy of the anthology on the day of the exam. They will have to learn 15 poems. They'll have to know 15 poems. My advice for that, just whilst we're on the subject, is for them to probably do something like traffic lights, the poems. Green, if you can talk about them with anything, because the content of them is such. Yellow, if they're okay for some things, but not for others. And red, if basically the poem is just on its own island and is very hard to compare with other poems. Because then as a parent, you can say, make sure you know your green poems for that exam on... 21st of May so that you've got all the power ones the ones that you can kind of bend to talk about with anything language is then on the 2nd of June the first exam is on the yeah on the 2nd of June that's where they will have to read a piece of fiction text and answer questions and then section b of that they will have to write their own piece of sort of descriptive writing or fiction writing, narrative writing. Three days later, on the 5th of June 2020, there is a second language exam, and this is more classed as like the non-fiction, the writer's perspectives and viewpoints exam. They won't read fiction in this. They will read maybe website articles or magazine articles. They will answer questions, and then they will write something again that isn't quite as sort of uh, fictitious and descriptive it might be a letter or a speech to, to, for a purpose that is, although imaginative, pretending to be true. So for me, as a parent and as a student, if you don't know when the exams are and you don't know what the content in terms of how those exams are built and what they're going to demand at the most basic level is, that's where to start. Have the list on the board. This is when the exams are. This is what's in each one. That is the first thing that everyone needs to know. Yeah, we've uh, for our members, we're um, we're doing a, an exam timetable so you can pop in your exam and your exam board, uh, exam board rather, and it'll just populate populate a whole timetable because it is that important to know what's coming up when. Mm. We've um, so also for our members, we've been doing a, a specification checklist. So for maths, for my subject, it's really easy. You have to be able to do this, do this, do this, do this. For English, and this mm. is why the question arises a lot of the time, it's it's not quite that simple. The uh, the specs are very, you know, I don't want to say airy fairy, but that, mm. that is kind of the word mm. I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. They're um, they're very very vague in terms of generic skills that you have to be able to do, which means it's not something that students are able to just go in and and tick off. It's a lot trickier. So, um, okay. in terms of what would be the biggest tip for what you can do or what you can get your child to do to be better to revise to be better prepared for the exam what would be the big okay. thing language I, I said this to when we when we spoke a few weeks ago um that in the remaining time that students have now which is less than nine months probably before the exam start students need to read and this isn't just for English language, as you all know, as a, as a math specialist, some of the questions in maths will have up to 200 words before the questions start. The average reading age of the GCSE exams is about 15 years and seven months. 
it is highly common that students, boys and girls, by the time they get to year 11, that their reading age is not in line with their real age. Over the next eight months, the greatest priority for students, and it's not just for English preparation, is to read. Um, I would support the reading of um, newspapers. The iNewspaper is a particular favourite because their whole um, like mission is to take news stories and condense them and make them bite-sized and make them manageable, which really for a teenager is what their entire life is. You know, everything that can be made smaller and quicker is. And so the iNewspaper is the closest crossover to traditional um, relatively mid to heavyweight information. Um, it's got a reading age of about 16, 16, 16 and a half that students should be reading. They are going to come up against so much text in English language, in English literature, in geography, in history, in maths, in some of the science papers. And I used, again, a very overused catchphrase with you a couple of weeks ago. If you turn up to your exams in May and June, and you haven't spent the last minimum of eight, nine months reading. It is like going to a weightlifting competition when you haven't been to the gym for years. You will turn up and you will instantly feel inadequate because to be given a page of text is intimidating to those of us that deal with that on a daily basis. My life involves reading all, all day, but I still get a bit of a sinking feeling when somebody gives me a sheet of A4 paper with 500 words font size 12 times New Roman on. It's, it's, it's a challenge for anybody. Um, I know myself as somebody who still struggles with reading speed particularly. I read at a speed to myself as if I'm reading to a child, and I always have them. Um, other people that can read, I know you're one of them probably read a 300 page book two or three nights by just glancing at it for 15 minutes in bed before you go to sleep, which is the most um, enviable superpower in my opinion. A 300 page book for me would take a good minute and a half per page. So at 450 minutes, you know, I'm, I'm seven, eight hours to do that same thing of solid concentration. There will be many students like me Who's, who do not feel natural with text, who don't pick it up and embrace it and think, oh, this looks enjoyable, this looks easy. A lot of students and a lot of adults have a natural aversion to text on paper, especially with a white background. Um, and so if nothing else, students should spend the next eight months reading whatever they can get their hands on. And for parents, they don't need it to be highbrow. It doesn't have to be, you know, the, the complete works of Dickens. It doesn't have to be. Even that I newspaper, 60p, and it's got a good reading age. It's, um, it's not politically left or right leaning. It's, you know, it's relatively centrist. Even if your son or daughter's just reading the sports pages or the fashion pages, it means that when they sit in the exams in May and June and they're presented with text it's not a surprise because they've been looking at text on Fridays and Saturdays and Monday nights for at least the last nine months otherwise the GCSEs basically belong to the students that read at home and I would estimate that to be less than 10% of students in this country.
from my experience of working with students, if you have a class of 30, I'd be surprised if any more than three of them read for pleasure at home on a regular basis. Wow. So do you think, because uh, I, I know certainly without us, they would much rather be staring at a screen than reading in any way, shape or form. Do you think there's any kind of psychological benefit to be reading actual physical words on paper rather than be, say, on a Kindle or reading something on your phone? However they read, I wouldn't put any parameters on. I think that's been very dangerous in the past because you know, to some degree reading is reading and if somebody's getting pleasure out of it, it shouldn't be somebody else's business to come along and say, no, actually the pleasure that you take from it should be more like this. However, the exams are on paper. A Kindle may replicate the idea of you sitting alone with text, but in terms of making annotations, putting a star by the vocabulary with your pencil, with words that you've never seen before, I know that you can hold them down and go to define and you know similar kind of things, but for me, for the next nine months, if nothing else, read on paper, and then as soon as you finish the exams, go back to the Kindle, go back to laptop, phone, because it, for the rest of your life, which is really sad, it won't matter. But for these exams, it makes sense to revise in the same format that the exams are going to be presented in, and that's paper-based. Now, there will be a lot of um, parents of students um, listening whose children basically aren't very good at spelling. And obviously over the next nine months, doing lots of reading is going to help with that. Um, we talked the other day about English literature and how spelling, whilst important, is not vital. Could you just explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is, this is something that I really think that students should know, and parents for that matter. As far as English language is concerned, roughly 20% is put aside for what's called VSPAG. VSPAG is vocabulary, spelling, punctuation and grammar. So 20% of language, which is a sizable amount. In literature, it's roughly 5% for VSPAC. So if you think there are five elements, um, or four elements rather, so for vocabulary, spelling, punctuation, and grammar, that means that spelling is probably worth 1.5%. If VSPAC is worth five, then one of those four elements is worth 1.5%. Students should not be going into literature exams thinking, well, I can't spell. My teacher's always pulling me up on the fact that I write in fragmented sentences. You know, I, I do miss a word out of sentences occasionally when I haven't read through. I do miss the odd capital letter. Whilst in the English language, they may lose up to 20% of the marks for that technical accuracy it is much more like 5% in literature. Now, I'm sure for any English teachers listening, they will say, yes, but you can lose more marks than the 5% if there is not a clarity of communication overall. Obviously, if the person can't understand who is marking it, what you are trying to say, then you can lose more marks for the content of your response than possibly 5%. But in terms of just spelling, if it's clear what you are trying, you know, if you spell Shakespeare with two S's at the beginning or priestly with two Y's at the end, you wouldn't lose them 
the mark for communication because it's very clear what the word is meant to be. But you would lose a maximum of one and a half percent if you did that all of the way through. And so it really does need clarifying that there is a, a difference between language and literature as far as students' technical accuracy is concerned. Whilst examiners will jump all over you in section B of the language exams, not section A because that's for reading responses, they'll jump all over you in section B when you've been asked to write a letter or a speech or a story or describe a picture. For literature, one and a half percent for spelling, one and a half percent for punctuation, one and a half percent for 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 grammar. Um, students should know that because if they don't feel confident in language because they've always struggled with technical accuracy, they shouldn't be taking the same feelings of inadequacy and anxiety into literature. And that is very often a message that is either missold or not sold to students. So if you're a parent of a student um, who has always struggled with their spelling, my own dyslexic tendencies were nothing to do with um, that base stereotypical interpretation of of spelling of dyslexia sorry mine was the ability to demystify what was spinning around in my own head a thousand miles an hour and actually put it down into some kind of sense on paper but if you have a son or daughter who struggles with technical accuracy they may be far more worried about english language section b but for literature they should feel inspired and confident and excited to go in and express their thoughts and feelings upon the texts that they have studied, knowing that the examiner with that red pen, only 5% of that red pen can be attributed to those things. So for students that, that struggle with reading, whether for reasons of, of dyslexia or whether they're just, just not keen readers at all, would mm -hmm. it be just as valid then to, for example, have the audiobook of the texts that they're that they're reading, just to get to know the text a little better. I mean, a lot of them have obviously been made into films and things. English teachers will probably be able to advise whether that particular adaptation is is right or not. But would that be a good alternative way to get them engaged with the materials? Because that way there's there's one less thing to worry about if they know the materials really well then it's easy to communicate what they understand absolutely so the answer to that is twofold in terms of increasing their awareness and appreciation of the text 100 percent um if an audiobook is always going to be i think the literature term is faithful so you just you describe whether um, a film adaptation is faithful to the original an audiobook is always going to be faithful because it's just somebody chosen to to read it out um, if that means that it can be played on a student's headphones whilst they're on the bus on the way to school um, it can be played in the car so the whole family have to suffer at the same time as the uh, as the student um, <coughs> then absolutely because it's I and mean, i didn't have the benefit of that 20 years ago, I'm paying myself a compliment there, it was 22 years ago. I didn't have the benefit of that then, but I would have used it and I would have loved the fact that I used to walk to work to, to work to school and it took 30 minutes. A lot of those audio texts are probably only two hours long, two to three. And there's something like um, Dr. Jekyll for anybody who 
the studies Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as their um, 19th century text. That's probably about three hours. So if you have that on your headphones on the bus, probably between Monday and Friday, you've listened to the whole thing. So as to whether it is uh, valid, then yeah, 100%. As to whether it replicates the pressure of seeing text on the day of the exam, no. Um, that students still need to deal in the same currency of the exam. And that is why students sitting with tablets, computers, phones, unless every school gets to the point where they can have a room with 200 computers, with all of the logins and all of the battery, and it will never go wrong, we are decades and decades away from that situation. Um, and so until then, you you rehearse in the same currency of the exam. And for me, that still means paper and that still means reading. So even if it's just key scenes, it's still it's still adequate preparation. And writing as well, because I know it's probably different now, but as an adult, I don't do a lot of writing. I do a lot of typing, I don't do a lot of writing. So when I have to sit down for whatever reason and write something quite long, I find that my hand's getting a little bit crampy and it's not quite working as well as it should do because I've not got that, that stamina built up almost to actually sit and write. And they've got to sit and write for, what, an hour and a half? Sometimes longer? Yeah, the second literature exam is two hours and 15 minutes long. Wow. And it's funny you should say that because I now type more than, more than I handwrite. I also have um, abominable handwriting. Um, for, I can't remember the reason, but I sat writing uh, a few weeks ago. I think I was sat at the back of um, a talk or presentation. And I sat with a notebook writing. And after about 10 minutes, my hand started to ache. And I hadn't experienced that since I'd probably done uh, maybe my GCSEs or my degree. And then I haven't experienced it for a long time. Because I was still writing on and off, but I generally type as well. So, yeah, maybe over the next eight or nine months as well, it's worth students in all of their lessons, geography, history, science, whatever it is, just trying to push how much they can get written in that classroom. So that if, if the teachers ask them to respond to something and usually they know a word will do or a sentence will do, to push themselves further to write that paragraph. To go back to that analogy before from the weightlifting competition, probably a bit, yeah, a bit less metaphorical this time. That is one of the things that they can practice with so that if they know they're turning up to a two hour, 15 minute exam, they're not going to be faced after 30 minutes with, well, I've, I haven't written this much since you know, year seven, year eight, my hand hurts. Because if that's the case, there's no, you know, I oh, will go and get a computer for you. That exam's just over. So yeah, that's an incredibly valid point and one I wouldn't have thought of. But yeah, for students to practice with the amount of handwriting they can do in nine months would be yeah an incredibly worthwhile thing to do. So we've, we've been talking a lot recently because as we record this, we are at the end of September. And so students are heading towards mocks sometime between November and January, depending on your school. And in 
in kind of the process of the mocks, we've been talking about how you can really make the most of them, like using them to find your knowledge gaps, using them to have a dress rehearsal, a stress-free, consequence-free dress rehearsal, so you know exactly what it's going to be like and you're not panicking when you get to the exam. Mm -hmm. For English, what is the best thing they can take from the mocks? What the, in terms of the experience, what, what will help them the most with their mocks? To prepare them. This, this very much depends on the school and maybe if you're empowered with sort of following information as a parent then you may be able to get more valid credible tangible information out of the school than the school may have the policy to present to students unfortunately some schools may only feed back in the mocks by grade. So your son or daughter will receive an English language grade between one and nine, nine being you know, sort of A star grade and then down to one, just like the old G. All students, as, as parents will know, are aiming for a minimum of a four, otherwise called a low pass. Um, teachers tends to push five because that is classed as a high pass in old money c plus kind of thing um and then fives up to up to nine but if your son or daughter comes back from school and they say i've got a three in english language and a four in english literature as much as parents will understand that okay you did better in literature so you got a low pass a four being equivalent to a c minus what is it you need to do to improve your English language to get from a three in old money, a D up to a four. And this is, this is a big issue and something that I find myself working with schools on, on a daily basis because achieving a grade in a subject, a summative grade really in terms of feedback is irrelevant. Um, there are in my my uh, estimation, over 1.6 million different reasons why students get each grade. And that's because um, in, say, the language exam, they're examined on their reading and writing. I think there are 36 skills for reading and writing, 18 for each. And then a student can prove their proficiency in either being brilliant at the skill, good, okay at it, or weak. So if you take... 36 times 36 times 36 times 36. It's about 1.6 million um, different reasons for the grade. So two students then going home with grade fours think that they've both got to do the same intervention and the same revision. And that is, that's the problem. And really that is the sort of crux on what I work on with schools. How do you break that four down into something useful? Some schools will then break English language down and say it was paper one that you need to work on because your paper two was okay. But they've both got the same skills in. So even if they broke it down even further and said it's section A of paper one, which is a reading section, there's 18 skills in the reading section. Or if they said it's section B of paper one in English language, that's a writing section. There's 18 skills in there. And so... I would encourage teachers, when um, parents, sorry, when their son or daughter comes home and say, I have a, a four in this or a five in this, don't ask which paper they need to work on. 
and don't even accept which section of the paper they need to work on because you cannot drill down any further than which skills in that paper do I need to focus on? And that is it. It's the skills. And if after the mocks, asking for maybe the biggest four, what are the biggest four skills? So it might be that the student didn't plan uh, their writing response and because they didn't plan it and come up with their paragraph ideas first and then structure their paragraphs order into um, paragraphs into sequence order then their work lacked kind of fluidity and clarity it might be that they didn't embed evidence into their responses so their, resp their responses were essentially just their opinion which isn't worth that many marks it might be that they didn't offer inference students should always walk into the exams with a stock amount of phrases this could, this may, this might, this perhaps, this is possibly. Because that shows that they're inferring the text from an artistic point of view rather than commenting on it as if they're a scientist looking at a fact. But if students don't know which skill they need to work on, very often students are just told things like, it was your inspector calls, you need to work on inspector calls. What does that mean? Is that the context of 1946 when it was written? Is that the influences that J.B. Priestley absorbed in his own life before he wrote the text? Is it because the student doesn't understand certain themes and characters? Or is it as simple as they don't know how to respond in the exam because they can't find an adequate amount of evidence? Well, there are so many questions that just being told a section of the exam or an exam for me is is useless. So parents need to encourage students to ask, which skills do I need to work on? Because it doesn't get any more refined than that. Can I just ask a question about that? Because so uh, we were talking about um, mock exams. If you've got 30, 32 students in a class, you've got one teacher, mm -hmm. you've got a two hour paper, it's the teacher who marks it. And obviously in the exams at the end of the year, it's, it's an examiner who marks it. They, how long do they spend on each script? How long have they got to look at the answers from that two-hour uh, writing assignment? And how best does a student signpost where their answers are? <laughs> I'll give you the honest answer to this, and it's one that I tell the students, and there's always a, a bit of a look of horror, but it's true. Um, if your teacher is marking it, you're probably lucky because the teacher has a vested interest in finding every single mark that they can because what the student doesn't probably appreciate um, as much as they should is that the grade of the student is a direct reflection on the performance of that member of staff. So whilst a member of staff might say to the student, you know, you know, if you don't pick up the pen, you don't write, then you know you don't get your GCSEs. It's not a reflection on me. In this current climate, it's, it is a direct reflection on them. So teachers will always spend the extra 30 seconds, the extra five minutes, whatever it is, when they're marking their students' texts to find whatever marks they can. Because as a member of staff, you have to input that grade onto a data sharing system for a head teacher and a deputy head teacher to look at. And would you rather put on that a student that has been in your care for two years 
achieved a four minus, like a C minus, or a three plus, so D plus. All teachers are going to want to put the higher, the higher grade because ultimately when their data is then processed, they look better. So I believe that the grades that teachers give to students are going to be as high as they can possibly give. When an examiner, however, marks papers, examiners are allowed, I think, to mark up to about four or 500 sections of a paper. If the exam board is low on markers and they are happy with the when they do the moderation of that examiner's marks, if they're happy with it, you could be offered another two, 300. And that's not just in English, that's common practice across all subjects. So if you imagine that an examiner is sitting 50 miles away from where your son or daughter's school is, because they don't generally tend to be sent papers from the same neighborhood that they live in in case they have sons, daughters, or you know, nieces, nephews at the school. You imagine that somebody 50 miles away is marking your son or daughter's paper as one of 300, 400, 500, 600. As much as that examiner may have thought it was a good idea to request the maximum amount of papers when they were calculating how much money that they would make for their family summer holiday, you would not want to be marked as paper number 437 that Sunday night, that tired late at night, because as is human nature, and this is the bit of it that I think students find hard to hear and possibly parents, as human nature, there is a difference between signing up to do something laborious and loving every minute of it. And so I have marked exams before, I've thought, well, I'll mark 500, I get paid four pounds a paper, so that's 2,000 pounds, and I've already calculated that well, that's 1,300 pounds after tax, that's a summer holiday. You come and ask me whether that feels like a good idea when I'm on paper 236, and it, it absolutely does not. And so <laughs> for students, the question is king. And before they start answering anything, the, the first thing that any student should do, and again, I'm sorry to say, but this is for every single GCSE exam as far as I'm concerned, is to find the words in the question that the examiner will be looking for in the response. Same in history, geography, as it is in English. There will be key words in the exam. So if it says, how does the writer describe um, the character in lines one to five, the student is circling writer, describe, character, and then reminding themselves it's lines one to five, so they're not picking it from line six or seven. Whatever the question is, how does, how does Dickens present Scrooge in this scene? To Dickens present Scrooge, they're highlighted. How does Priestley present the character of Gerald in Inspector Calls? Um, Priestley present Gerald. Those keywords that have been identified then should be littered throughout the response. Absolutely littered. And the worst, sorry, the worst thing is when you see a student sat in the exam hall chewing the pen, you, go, you know, and you, you imagine them thinking, what's a better word for present? What's a better word for describe? If the word is in the question, there is no better word than that word, and you use it in every single paragraph, but no one has ever brought a student's marks down because of overuse of answering the question. And so, you know, if there are other words, when you're showing off with your writing in language section B, 
and you sit there and take 10 seconds and think, is there a better word for this? I get it. But in everything else, if the word is in the question, then use it. Because Sunday night, 11 o'clock, baby crying and husband or wife in bed and you're marking paper 426, all you will see on that page is the keywords jumping off. And that student is helping you to give them the highest mark possible. You talked the other day about making sure in that response you highlighted those keywords as well. So highlight the, the, the question, highlight the keywords in the answer, just to make it really, really abundantly clear. Not, not in the answer. Not, not in the answer. Um, in the question, yes. So the first thing that students do, turn to question one. They don't answer question one. They deconstruct and highlight the question. The first thing that your pen does isn't to the answer, it's to the question. Any student who starts answering what they think is the question very often finds that within 30 seconds or 10 minutes they've been answering what they wanted to answer and not what the question was actually expecting from them, but not in the response. Um, the examiners will track, they will skim read, and they will see the word describes, presents, Dickens, Priestley, whatever it is. Um, they don't need to highlight them. And actually, I wouldn't advise that at all. It's too scaffolding. We always, well, I always used to shout about uh, this in maths because students do the same thing. They don't read the question properly. They answer what they think the question is asking and, and, and then it all goes horribly wrong. So I used to start most exam prep lessons by writing RTFQ on the board. Read the full question. They usually interpret it slightly differently, but if it makes it remember, it makes them remember it, then it's it's worth doing because it can make such a difference. If you've wasted five minutes going off on one tangent that then turns out to be entirely wrong when you look back at the question, that's five marks worth of, uh, of time gone, and absolutely. it's uh, something that you can't get back when you're in an exam situation. So, absolutely, yeah. Can I just ask another question about the number of marks allocated? to each question in an exam. Um, if it's 60 marks for, um, for the paper, um, you talked the other day about how important it is to be very clear about how much time you dedicate to each question. Mm -hmm. it, it has worked better in the past. Um, it's always envious of, I think there used to be, I don't know if it's still the case, that biology, physics and ke um, chemistry exams were 60 marks in 60 minutes. And I always thought that was a really nice thing for that exam board to have done. Because then as a teacher, you can say, look at the clock, one mark, one minute. And that's lovely. It's, it's just something that is such a simple thing that supports students in the pressure of the exam at 15, 16 years old. But unfortunately, I don't know if it's still the case. And for English, it's not quite as straightforward. If you start with the English language exams, um, the first section is an hour. Um, certainly on AQA, which is the most sort of common board used um, in this country, and then I believe probably EDUCAS and Edexcel. And I think they're very similar anyway. There are 40 marks on AQA and they're given 60 minutes. So a lot of teachers interpret that, and I think it's fair enough that 20 of the minutes are for reading and annotating, whether that's the text you've been given or the question, you find the keywords in. And then you can think of it as being a mark a minute. So question one is four marks. You would not spend longer than four minutes on it. 
because it's just um, a retrieval question that says list four things you learn about the character in lines one to four. And you just look over, copy them out, put them in four marks. Question two, um, then question three and question four. And it's the same on language paper two as well. Eight marks, 12 marks, 16 marks. You can afford to think of them as a mark, a mark a minute. Some schools might say a mark and a half a minute so that they're not advocating as much time on reading. For me, if you haven't read it properly and comfortably, then whatever you're writing is probably going to be a waste of time. So I prefer the idea that you should read. And I've, I've done this as a test with, with students. Read this, read it again, slowest reader in the class, usually me. Um, put your hands up when you've finished. No student has ever needed more than 15 minutes of sort of reading and highlighting, but the exam boards generally do give them more, so 20. So then a mark a minute, and you know that if you're on an eight mark question and you look up and you spent 12 minutes on it, you need to move on. As is the same with all exams, the biggest mark questions are at the back. And so when students come out of the exam and say, I think I've done really well, but I didn't do the last question, the truth of it is they haven't done really well because the last question might have been worth 25% of the paper as a whole. So at the beginning of the exam and they've got a four mark question, make sure they've, you know, the students bring a paper home, show it to parents and parents will be able to work out very quickly, right? If the, if the total marks of the paper is, the total minutes of the paper is, even if your teacher hasn't told you, you've basically got a minute a mark, or a minute and a half a mark, whatever it is. And it, it needs to be considered that mathematically because that's what an exam is. And this is where some students, like maybe I did at school, struggled with English because an exam isn't about the love of English. An exam is about having a timer on the board and a figurative gun to your head for you to get all of the skills down on paper necessary before that time hits zero. And so unless the mathematics that the exam is built upon, and that goes for an art exam, a history exam, or an English exam, unless the mathematical structure of an examination is embraced, then you might as well just say, go into the room for a bit and do your best. And it's, it's not good enough for English. It's not good enough in other subjects. So students and, and parents to know the mark a minute. And if you go over it, move on because towards the back of the paper, that's where the biggest questions are. The only, the only way that, you, that I might advocate change in the order of the paper, section B of the language papers is the writing section. And in fact, parents should also know, as should students, that students will sit nine sections in their English um, examinations. They will sit four for English language, and they will sit five for English literature. Of those nine, only two of them examine quality, really, of the student's writing to a heavyweight degree. The other seven, two of them on language, and all five at lit, examine a student's ability to respond to a piece of reading. So in section B of the language paper, student might think, students might think, I'm going to do this first. So the open section being to write a speech, write a speech to a, um, your peers in year 11 and to your teachers in which you explain 
um, your feelings on the importance of having a hobby. Okay, or it might be section B of paper one, which is more descriptive and creative. Write a story about a time that you were scared or um, bring the following picture to life or so we'll give them an image and say, describe this picture. Students may feel for whatever reason, I'm going to get the bit with all the laborious writing out the way. So I might do section B first because that's when I've been given 45 minutes just to write. Section B of language paper one and language paper two is a task with then writing to do. It might be that the student, for whatever reason, really loves the writing. So they want to do it first or hates the writing. So they want to do it first. But you can do that. The ordering of the questions in section A, however, I believe build up the confidence and security of text knowledge. And so whilst there may be exam papers where that isn't true as a general point of guidance, the best thing you can do is just use the clock and do them in order and know that if it says four marks, four minutes, eight marks, eight minutes, so that you do get to that question worth 16 or 20, having built up your understanding of the text. 14 hours? Yeah. Uh, okay. Kevin modal verbs have been mentioned. Shall I ask a question about that? No, because I'm going to put that in the the bit for um for members. Is there anything else that you you want to cover? Um, yeah, I think just just quickly, it would be worth saying about um about a reading acronym. And I will mention the one that I use so that I go back to this idea because I've just said seven out of nine sections are for reading. It's easier to, rather than thinking of it as lang and lit, think of it as reading and writing. Language has two writing sections to reading. And then literature is all reading. So it says, here's an extract, you know, write about it. Or here's a poem, write about it. Seven of the sections ask the students to demonstrate their ability to read something and then respond to it. A structured of acronym system for building paragraphs should always be embraced, particularly by those students with low confidence. A couple of years ago, one of the biggest exam boards, if not the biggest exam board, stated, in my belief, entirely sort of, if it's true incorrectly, if it's been taken out of context, then so be it. That they didn't like students using acronyms or initial systems to remember how to build paragraphs. This is completely wrong because by the nature of having a mark scheme, there is a way to respond to the mark scheme. And at the age of 15 or 16, an educationalist responsibility is to make that mark scheme as student friendly as possible so that students can aim for all of the marks. And so some schools scrapped uh, paragraph response structures altogether because they were worried that the examiners were going to say, well, you've clearly taught them a system here and we don't like that. Well, tough, because 
if it makes life easier for students who struggle with English and who are not naturally gifted with English or EFL, EAL students who are going to sit in the exam, our job is to make their life to some degree as easy as we can so that they can then take what we've given them, use it for security and confidence and then flourish. Systems that have been completely pushed aside like PEE, Point Evidence Explain, PEA, Point Evidence Analysis, PETL, Point Evidence Terminology, possibly, don't know what the A is, and then um, Analysis maybe, and then L for Link. Parents might have heard that students come home with, I've got to write three P paragraphs, or PEA paragraphs, or PETL paragraphs. Some schools may just not be talking about these initialisms or acronym systems. What the exam board will have meant to have said is for students attempting to get the highest of marks, they must not rely on such robotic systems. And that is absolutely fine, but there is a clear distinguishable difference. For students to get grade eight and grade nine, what they should do is take the acronym and feel free to play with the spelling of it. Whilst the other students need to stick to the letter of, I will make my point, I will then embed my evidence, I will then analyze it, because they don't have that natural flair, which is a word that was always used in the mark scheme by that exam board. To show true sophistication and flair, to get grade eight or nine, or in old money, the A or the A star, I completely agree. The Acronym should be removed like you would remove the stabilizers on someone's bike when they are confident to cycle. But if you have students who cannot cycle, your responsibility is to help them go into an exam and help them to not fall off. And those structures and those systems do exactly that. And to remove them completely is immoral. To suggest that they shouldn't exist at all is immoral at a, a professional weapons grade level for, <laughs> for students across the country to effectively be told in your lit exam in all five sections and in your language exam in both of those sections just go in and do your best just read the question and do your best is an absolute crime and so I would advocate if there are students whose parents send them into school after listening to this and say, is, is there an acronym that I'm supposed to use in the exam, sir or miss? Is there a, a response acronym that I can use to build my paragraphs? If the response that comes back from teachers is, no, no, we don't use them because you're, you're not meant to use them. You're basically meant to go from having never been on a bike before to unicycling. That's... <laughs> we're advocating that you do, then I would use um, a, an acronym that spells the word C's. It stands for Statement, Evidence, Inference, Zoom, and Effect. Now, if you use it in the literature paper, then the Z has to have two meanings. It must stand for Zoom In and Zoom Out, because it means that students should make a statement, which is give their opinion, embed a piece of evidence which they found in the text, 
provide inference, which is where they can revise the phrases, this could be, this may be, this might be, perhaps the writer is trying to suggest. All of those kind of artistic interpretive phrases, those verbs of modality, then they should zoom in on a particular word or an exclamation mark or a piece of ellipsis. They zoom in like they're sort of using their phone and zooming in on something. But then they should also zoom out on the world that the writer was influenced by um, because they can then talk about the writer's intentions in 1946 and the writer's influences, the writer's world. The very last thing they say is that they the effect it has on them as a reader or as a member of the audience if they're studying a play. So the very last sentence can be, I think Priestley is trying to make me feel, or I think the poet is trying to get us to think about. A structure like that, two Zs for literature because they need to zoom out on the context. In language, they'll have never seen the text before, so they don't need to zoom out. In language, the acronym is simply statement, evidence, inference, zoom in, effect you can't zoom out when you've no idea where the text from who's written it you haven't studied them in class doesn't exist but to say to students you don't use them is categorically wrong and i would fight anybody to the death for suggesting otherwise um at grade eight or grade nine i've seen a brilliant visual that a school use it's a tin of alphabetic spaghetti and it's pouring out the letters of the seas, spilling everywhere all over the page. And it effectively sort of symbolizes, if you are grade eight or grade nine, you spell it however you want. You zoom in here and then you do the effect and then you zoom out and then you put some evidence in. When you have got the stabilizers off your bike, go into the exam and show them that grade eight, nine flare by not relying on the spelling of an acronym. Up to grade seven, arm yourself with one because for seven ninths of the GCSEs, two sections of reading in language, five sections of reading in lit, that acronym is your power card for everything that you need to do. If schools have their own systems that are working, fantastic. But if students don't have one, then I would advocate that they simply try and build as many C's paragraphs as possible throughout all of their reading sections in the exams. Excellent advice, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I know I feel at this stage like I get it that little bit better when, um, so we've, we've obviously had two of ours go through GCSEs already. We've got mm -hmm. another one who's only 10, but when mm -hmm. she gets to this stage, I feel like I'd actually be able to help her now. That's, yeah. um, massively helpful thank you so so much and um, if you are one of our members then tom has very kindly done us a five point key things to know about language and lit printable so you'll be able to find that in the english section and um, if you're not one of our members and you'd like to know more about it parentcountrygcse.com because you know i feel like we should get a quick plug in there at least um mm -hmm. And we will make sure that we shout a lot about the book as and when it's available, because it sounds like that would be a really good way to, to help your child structure their, their English revision and just make sure that they get it all sussed. So huge thank you for your time today. You're and, welcome. Um, it has been an absolute delight. <laughs>
Thank you very much for putting up with us. If you'd like to know more about how you can support your child through their GCSEs, then head over to parentguide2gcse.com. To